do you have that one piece of clothing you keep going back to no matter how full your closet is? Having a versatile, high-quality favorite feels great, but having a whole closet full of them feels even better. American Giant puts the quality, durability, and comfort they're famous for into everything you need for your spring days. From premium t-shirts and jeans to lightweight French terry joggers and their legendary best hoodie ever. Whether you're dressing for work, the gym, or happy hour, you're sure to find your next closet go-to from American Giant. And it's all made in America and designed to last a lifetime. Get 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's American-Giant.com, code S-T-A-P-L-E-2-0. Before starting, however, I want to draw your attention to another podcast. The Wonders of the World is a podcast by Andrew Varenkamp. Each episode, he chooses a different wonder of the world and examines it from a historic and from a travel point of view. To do this, he interviews people, and in his most recent episode, I was one of the people he interviewed. It was a lot of fun talking about the Nazca Lines the civilizations of Peru, and the mysteries that surround both. I really enjoyed being on the podcast, and I'm not just saying this because I appeared on it. I really think that his podcast is worth checking out. So if you're interested, go and take a look at that. Anyway, on with the episode. The first foray northwards from Hispaniola was conducted by Ponce de Leon. If you cast your mind back to episode 29 conquest of the Caribbean, you will remember him as the man who took Puerto Rico for the Spanish. We introduced him there and outlined his life to that date, so if you haven't listened to that episode, go back and do it. You'll have a much better idea of who De Leon was. After conquering Puerto Rico, Ponce de Leon turned the island into his personal domain. He was made governor, a new position for a new colony. And as it was he who had brought the colony into existence, he was able to shape its direction. He set up the encomienda system, encouraged agriculture and mining, and he grew personally very wealthy from his position. Well, it wasn't quite that simple. He was caught up in Diego Columbus's attempts to take back control of the Caribbean. We will look at this in more detail next episode, but for now I just wanted to give some background. In 1512, de Leon was contacted by King Ferdinand. The king wanted to know if he was interested in taking part in an expedition. There was thought to be an island to the north, and the crown wanted it investigated, and if possible, formally claimed. They called it Benemy, but today we call it Florida, though we know that it is not an island. Now somebody must have at least seen it from a distance, otherwise the king could not have known of its existence. There doesn't appear to have been any official trip there, however, so it may have been independent explorers, or perhaps even someone just blown off course who sighted it. 
The Bahamas was also where Columbus first sighted lands in the Americas, and they had been visited by slaving expeditions many times since. So it's definitely possible that on one or more of these slaving trips, Florida was first seen. We just don't know, and we don't know if those people made landfall. But, as we know nothing about it, we can cautiously say that this was the first time that Europeans visited today's United States. Ponce de Leon was a man of means now. He was required to fund his expedition himself, but thanks to being the governor of Puerto Rico, this wasn't a problem, and he gathered together 200 men and three ships. He set off and reached Florida via the Bahamas without incident. We are not sure where exactly he came ashore, but we know that on arrival he gave the land its contemporary name, Florida. After making some minor forays inland over the next five days, they started following the coastline southwards. As they did so, they encountered a current which drove them off course and separated one of the ships from the fleet. They were apart for a couple of days. De Leon had discovered the Gulf Stream. He continued south, passing the site of today's Miami, where he encountered the Tequesta people, although the Tequesta quickly fled into the interior. Next they reached the Florida Keys, and spent a few days trying to find a safe route through them in order to explore more of the mainland. When they did succeed, they came across another local people, the Calusa. This time, more meaningful contact was made, but it was not of a friendly nature. Tentative attempts were made to trade, but these resulted in hostility and small skirmishes. Eight Calusa were taken prisoner, and one was trained to serve as a translator. Satisfied that he had substantiated the rumours of land, De Leon decided to call it a day and head back to Puerto Rico. He chose to continue westwards, however, planning to then move south and reach Cuba. This did not work, as the currents in the Gulf pushed him back, and he ended up returning via the same route he had come out on. The trip lasted eight months, and it had been moderately successful. No significant disasters or loss of life had occurred, and he had laid the groundwork for a future conquest in Florida. He had also unknowingly discovered the Gulf Stream, and understanding this would help future sailors in the region. His work certainly satisfied King Ferdinand, as when he returned to Spain he was knighted for his efforts. Before he went back to Spain, he returned to Puerto Rico to check up on his colony. Things had not been going completely smoothly there without his leadership. I mentioned in the episode on the conquest of the Caribbean that taking Puerto Rico had been relatively straightforward. This was true, but soon afterwards, relations with the Taino started to break down. Trouble had been brewing for some time, and there had been developments while De Leon was away. I had planned to talk about this briefly here. However, as usually happens, the more I looked at it, the more interesting and detailed the story became. The situation will descend into a full-on rebellion, which will last several years and this is an important moment in Puerto Rican history. Furthermore, this is all tied up in the scheming I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. Therefore, 
To do it justice, I've decided to give it its own episode. That would be the next one. You don't really need to know much about it. Again, this is just background. The story of De Leon's explorations still makes perfect sense without telling this story now. De Leon quickly set off for Spain, where, besides being knighted, he was also given a charter to mount a proper conquest of Florida. Upon his return to Puerto Rico, he discovered that several small unauthorized expeditions had already visited his new lands, and this made him keen to set out and make his claim concrete. He was distracted by the aforementioned events in Puerto Rico, however, and it wasn't until 1521 that he finally returned to Florida. One of these unauthorized journeys took place in 1516 and was carried out by a man named Diego Miruelo. Miruelo was the first to explore Florida's western coastline, although he did little more than that. We don't really know anything about his trip, but amusingly, he is said to have failed to make proper records of his trip, and when he attempted to bring people back, he was unable to locate his previous discoveries. This quest to rediscover it is said to have driven him to insanity. Another trip took place in 1519, led by a man named Depineda. He mapped the coast of Florida, the southern coast of the USA, and reached Mexico, where he was killed in battle. Although he was not the first to reach this part of Mexico, he came after the explorers we will talk about later in this episode. He was the first one to follow the coastline all the way from Florida. This meant that Spanish knowledge of Florida could now be connected to their knowledge of the rest of the Central American coast, and that the Spanish had concrete knowledge of the Atlantic coast all the way from eastern Florida down to Argentina. Anyway, in 1521, De Leon finally managed to get his expedition together and set sail for Florida. This was to be the beginning of a new colony, and De Leon brought with him all the men and supplies needed for this. This was going to be a long-term thing, and herald the beginning of Spanish Florida for centuries to come. Except it wasn't. It couldn't have been over quicker and more anticlimactically. Almost as soon as he arrived, De Leon's men were attacked by the Calusa people, and one of them managed to hit De Leon with a poisoned arrow. He quickly died, and without their leader, the settlers abandoned their mission. Spanish attempts to colonise Florida did not end with De Leon's death. They would have no success, however, for quite a while, and so we will leave these later attempts for a future episode. There is one thing I want to clear up here, however. It's a well-known myth that Ponce de Leon had heard rumours that the legendary Fountain of Youth was located in Florida, and that this was his motivation for exploring there. The idea that somewhere there was a magical water source which could make you young again had been around since the time of the ancient Greeks. The story goes that the Taino of the Caribbean told de Leon that such a fountain could be found to the north, and that de Leon set off determined to find it. To put it bluntly, this is not true. To begin with, we have seen that de Leon had enough motivation to explore Florida already, what with being promised a colony there. The fact that he hardly set foot ashore during his voyages also suggests that this was not his goal. If he was really determined to find the fountain, 
Surely he would have immediately set off into the interior, instead of exploring the coastline. Finally, the story of his quest for the fountain first appears 14 years after his death, so was most likely attached to him long after his lifetime. He said nothing himself at any point on the subject, as far as we are aware. So that's the end of De Leon's story. With that, let's turn our attention to Mexico, where at the same time, the first explorations in the region had been taking place. There had been a couple of insignificant encounters with the south of Mexico already. We mentioned in the episode on the conquest of the Caribbean, Apinzon and De Solis very briefly and only just reached the coast of what is today Mexico. Another contact was made by accident. You may remember in the recent episode on Balboa and Tierra Firme that a man came from Hispaniola and made contact with Balboa's settlement in Santa Maria while looking for Nicuesa. Well, on his way back to Hispaniola, this man, Pedro de Valdivia, was shipwrecked off the coast of Jamaica. He and the other 20 survivors got into their small lifeboats and drifted all the way to the Yucatan Peninsula. Over half the remaining survivors died on the way, and when they reached land, a local Maya cacique imprisoned them. Valdivia was sacrificed, along with a few others, but the rest managed to escape and reached the land of other neighbouring caciques. The only two men who seemed to have survived for any length of time were Jerónimo de Aguila and Gonzalo Guerrero. Remember those names. They will come up again soon in a future episode. Beside these small encounters, before the famous conquest by Cortes, there were two attempts to explore and colonise Mexico. Both of these were largely confined to the Yucatan Peninsula, and we will cover both today. The first was led by Francisco Hernández de Córdoba, a man who we know little about. His trip was financed by Diego Velázquez, the man who had conquered Cuba. Velázquez had settled in as the island's governor, but he had his eyes on bigger prizes. He probably financed Córdoba's expedition, with a view to make some sort of claim to his discoveries. An alternative explanation is that he had no intention of colonising the Yucatan and was only after slaves. I personally think that he wanted new lands, but that he wouldn't have said no to some slaves. It's hard to say for certain. Much of the crew was made up of veterans of the colony in the Darien. These men had grown bored in the colony there, due to Davila's lack of conquests. These men had all taken a gamble to come to the new world, and wanted to find fame and money. They found themselves unable to do so in the Darien, and so left for Cuba in search of new opportunities. The conquest of Cuba was over so quickly, that they did not find them on the island, but they were able to join this expedition soon afterwards. Cordoba's expedition would be far from a success, Although, as is a familiar refrain now, he did make some useful discoveries which would help future expeditions. Not that this would be much good to Cordoba personally, as we shall see. Its main reason for failure was that it was totally unprepared for the people they would encounter. So far the Spanish had met semi-tribal societies everywhere they went. They had no knowledge of the Aztecs, Inca or Maya 
and that they would be sailing directly into Maya territory. Now Maya civilization was well past its peak, but even then it was a totally different proposition to the Taino of the Caribbean or the people of Panama. They lived in cities with what you would call civilization. They had organized states with armies, and each city's leader could marshal and direct resources in a way that the tribal leaders of the Caribbean could not. Not expecting this, Cordoba was unprepared. When many of these native people showed themselves to be hostile, he could do nothing to resist. What's more, these developed states had dense populations, and this meant that little land was unoccupied. On previous conquests, the Spanish had been able to set up camps in the wilderness and request or steal food and water from the local people. Here the Maya often refused to give them these things, and there was no wilderness they could stop at and collect them for themselves. In particular, it was water, or a lack of it, that would destroy Cordoba's expedition. He set off from Havana in 1517 with a hundred men and three ships. He sailed west, and as soon as he left the Cuban coastline, he was hit by a storm which was almost strong enough to end the expedition there and then. They survived it unscathed, however, and continued onwards until they reached the coast of the Yucatan Peninsula. Almost immediately, from their boats, the Spanish saw pyramids and cities, and they nicknamed the land the Great Cairo, as the pyramids appeared to them like the minarets of the mosques they had encountered in North Africa. Two boats were sent ashore to make contact, and the Spaniards were invited into the city. They returned the next day as instructed, but they found themselves ambushed. The Spanish were heavily outnumbered, but managed to retreat to the boats, with only two casualties sustained. They did at least manage to capture two locals, who they used as interpreters for the rest of the trip. Once they were safely away, Cordoba chose to follow the coastline and find somewhere better to land. This is where their lack of preparation really started to bite. Their budget for their preparations does not seem to have stretched to proper containers to store drinking water, and the ones they had kept leaking. This forced the Spaniards to land in search of water, even when this was not a good idea. Spanish accounts also complain that there was a lack of freshwater rivers in the area. Eventually, they decided to go ashore, at a town they called Lazaro. Luckily, the local cacique was not hostile, and he allowed them to fill up with water. Soon, however, he seems to have changed his attitude, and he gathered his soldiers together. He lit a bundle of reeds, and through the captured translators, he told the Spanish that they must leave before the fire was burnt out, or they would be attacked. The Spanish got the message. They continued onwards, but it wasn't long before they ran out of water again. They chose a spot, and a small party went ashore. This time they were not given the courtesy of a warning. They were attacked straight away, and this battle did not go in the Spaniards' favour. In all they lost fifty men, and did not get the water they had landed for. They continued northwards, and in desperation landed at a lagoon, here they found some water, but it was brackish, and they had to contend with the crocodiles which inhabited it. It was time to give up. 
Knowing what they would face if they retraced their steps, they decided to find a different route back to Cuba. Having knowledge of Ponce de Leon's first trip to Florida, they decided to head that way and then southwards to Cuba. While this was a longer route, it would perhaps allow them to meet some friendlier indigenous people and mean that they did not die of thirst. The plan seems to have worked until they reached Florida itself, where they were once again attacked. This time, Cordoba sustained an injury, and he turned out to be fatally wounded. He survived just long enough to see them sail back into the colony, but died soon after that. While it hadn't achieved much, Cordoba's expedition is most notable for alerting the Spanish and the rest of the European world to the existence of large organised societies in the America. This in itself is what makes him worthy of the history books, and his discovery surely would have caused quite a stir. Less than a year later, another man decided to investigate more thoroughly, and thanks to the groundwork laid by Cordoba, he was better prepared. That man was a relative of Velasquez, who after seeing the Cordoba expedition fail, decided to have another go. His name was Juan de Grijalva. Juan had arrived in Hispaniola in 1508, before accompanying Velázquez on his conquest of Cuba, and then living comfortably there for the next ten years. Accounts vary as to how many soldiers Velázquez provided this time, but it was probably somewhere around the 200 mark, if not more. De Grijalva set off westwards along the Cuban coast and made the hop over to the Yucatan Peninsula. This was a similar route to that of Cordoba, but he had chosen to make landfall slightly further south, first reaching the island of Cozumel. From here he moved northwards, passing the city of Tulum and reaching Isla Mujeres, just off the coast of today's Cancun. Both of these islands and the coastline were heavily populated, and again the Spanish remarked how tall the buildings were and how many of them there were. Tulum in particular was one of the largest cities in the area, and even today its ruins are impressive, if packed with tourists. He then followed the peninsula westwards, before going south to look for Lazaro, the town where Cordoba's men had obtained water before being given their warning to leave. Here they sent most, if not all, of their men ashore, fully prepared for battle, and waited to see how the local cacique greeted them. A group of warriors came out to meet them, and there was a tense standoff for a whole day before a battle broke out. The Spanish managed to repel the Maya, but they lost 40 men in the process. De Grijalva decided to continue northwards to find somewhere with more hospitable people. As he moved up the coastline, however, he found himself constantly watched by war canoes, a signal that he would not be welcome. Eventually, he reached the town of Sintla, where the local cacique agreed to talk. A small amount of trade was done, and the cacique came aboard one of the Spanish ships to talk. He told them of the powerful Mexica people to the north, and the gold they had in their possession. This was probably the first time that the Spanish got word of the Aztec. As they continued northwards, the Spanish left Maya territory. They decided to go ashore again on an island near today's Veracruz, where Cortes would make landfall, and here they made a 
grisly discovery. It appears that nobody was there to greet them, but while walking around the town they came across a temple. Here they found a stone basin with human blood in it, which De Grijalva reckoned to be about a week old. This was evidence of human sacrifice, and the Spaniards were horrified. They quickly moved on until they reached the Panuco River, and here they traded with the locals. At this point they started heading back, and besides a short stop to repair their ships, the return journey to Cuba was uneventful. Overall, De Grijalva's expedition was another unremarkable one. However, it confirmed that this land was a highly developed and populated one, unlike those encountered so far. It also, of course, laid the groundwork for Cortes to conquer it. It would be less than a year before Cortes landed at Veracruz, and little over three before the Aztec had been defeated. So that brings us up to date with Spanish New World activity up until 1520. In just 20 years, they had moved outwards from Hispaniola to conquer much of the Caribbean and begin to settle Panama. In that time, they had explored the whole of the Caribbean Sea from Florida to Mexico, Central America, Colombia, Venezuela, the Guyanas, and northern Brazil. They had also discovered the Pacific Ocean and made inroads into Colombia. Next episode, we will make one last diversion to look at the Taino rebellions of Puerto Rico, before spending an episode catching up with events in Spain. After that, things really start heating up with Cortez's conquest of Mexico. Until then, thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Latin American History Podcast, written and recorded by Max Sargent. For more information, visit the website www.maxargent.com slash the history of Latin America. And that's spelt M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to get in contact at History of Latin America Podcast at gmail.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching for the Latin American History Podcast. The Twitter handle is at History Latin AM. And if you've liked the show, you can help out by leaving a review on iTunes. Alternatively, if you visit the website, you'll see that each episode is accompanied by relevant photos. Most of these are my own, taken during my time in Latin America. All these photos and more are available to purchase as prints at my Etsy shop. You can find this at www.etsy.com slash photo. That's spelt www.etsy.com slash m-a-x-s-e-r-j-e-a-n-t photo. Thanks for listening. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.